This is an ABC podcast. How good is Australia? Wishful thinking of the Labor Party. There's a climate fight club going over on the other side, Mr Speaker. Peter Dutton will know he's alive each and every day. That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble. Hello and welcome to another episode of your favourite politics podcast, The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive. And I'm Fran Kelly from Insiders. And Fran, you know, I've been in Canberra all week for this sitting week and I've got to say, I can't quite figure out what this week has been about. I mean, it's like an episode of Seinfeld. Do you remember the one where they were pitching that idea for a show? It's about nothing. Right. Everybody's doing something. We'll do nothing. (laughs) There was a lot but nothing. I'll explain what I mean because I know I'm saying two inconsistent things. The week did start off with this announcement of the ACCC inquiry into banks and then it focused a lot on drought and we kind of got somewhere on that, which we'll talk about in a moment. But it did feel like just filling in time a lot of the time in in the parliament. It wasn't frenetic and like it usually is, Fran. Legislation is one thing, announcements are another, I suppose. And this goes back again to the John Howard days when his advisor, Graham Morris, would just say, look, just, you know, essentially mimicking Joe Bielke-Peterson, feed the chooks, give them something. What the government gave us at the start of this week to get us going and distracted us in some ways was an inquiry into the banks to look at how the banks decide on what mortgage rate cuts to deliver or not. And this is off the back of the banks not matching the Reserve Bank Board's interest rate cuts and the fury around that. This feeds into a number of narratives that suit the government, which is A, the banks are greedy, um, B, the government's on the side of the little fella, not big business, not the banks, you know, Therefore, you know, you'd all be better off if you had your mortgage rate cut in line with the Reserve Bank cuts and the government's going to do its best to do that, which is all very well, except it really doesn't change anything much. And the banks say, bring it on because we've got a good story to tell here. Our borrowing costs are what our borrowing costs are. And, uh, you know, all in all, this is not going to change much really. But there, there is some real legislation coming up and this is being discussed within the major parties, but the legislation, the, the debates haven't happened. Happen yet? If you think about it, we've got the big stick energy laws, uh, which now look likely to pass. Um, Labor's decided to support that legislation with some changes. We've got the religious draft discrimination legislation that's coming up in the next few weeks. The government would love to get that through by the end of the year, though I don't like their chances. We've got the Medivac repeal bill. The government is very keen to get going on that. And we've got the ensuring integrity bill, which is the union busting bill. So the government's got these key bills, which is all about their major narrative, basically, which is, you know, border protection, union busting, energy prices and religious discrimination. They've got that, they've got the outline of a narrative, but that's not a lot of sort of um, nation-building legislation going on at the moment. And this all goes back to the point, I think, that the government didn't expect to win the election, PK. Yeah, I think it absolutely goes back to that. And I've spoken to many people on both sides of politics this week as I've spent lots of time here. And, uh, look, no one sort of, you know, yells and gets angry when I make the assertion that it looks to me like a pretty light-on week. Even on the government side, there is an acknowledgement that, yep, OK, I can see we're working on some things, but there is a view that, as you say, there's the sort of outline, but there needs to be a lot of colouring in, if you like. They need to get those Derwent pencils out and start colouring in in terms of an agenda. Look, let's just kind of zoom out and look at what's actually happened this week. So as you've outlined, yes, the ACCC inquiry was announced and bank bashing has become quite popular. Now, 
the government has realised, hey, they don't want to be stung twice, do they? They held off on the Royal Commission for so long. Now they're trying to get more active in this bank bashing space or trying to hold the, the banks to account because customers and voters are grumpy. So they're doing that. And then the rest of the week was them kind of defending their drought policy and defending the way that they're handling this. And this, I think, was an issue for them. And I think we've got the best evidence of that, Fran, because we've got an announcement. We're recording Mm -hmm. this on a Thursday morning and it speaks volumes to how much pressure they've been under, not just from Labor, although I think Labor, given they are, and we can get into that a little later with our special guest today, but Labor has been struggling and feel, they feel all quite depressed, I've got to say. They feel a bit lost, but they have got some runs on the board in terms of putting some pressure on the government on this drought policy. Then we had Alan Jones putting pressure on the Prime Minister in a very fiery interview where he really went hard on the Prime Minister as he does. He just turns on Prime Ministers and he turned on this one on this issue of drought. And why that's significant is when when he became Prime Minister, Scott Morrison made this his number one priority. In fact, not just when he became Prime Minister, even when he came back from that trip to the United States, you know, he literally drove from one plane to the next so he could do another drought trip. He has made this a signature issue for himself. It was a way of product differentiating himself from Malcolm Turnbull and saying this, he was the man of the land, he was a man that's, you know, getting in touch with the regions. And so he has been on the back foot all week on drought and this has been difficult for them. So this morning, we're recording on a Thursday morning, Scott Morrison has announced changes to the farm household allowance. Uh, Interestingly, on the John Laws program, not the Alan Jones program. So, you know, he's a bit grumpy, obviously, with Alan Jones for going so hard. And at the end of the four years, the current time allowed for the payment, which, you know, many people kind of describe as welfare for farmers, they will receive a lump sum payment of $7,500 for singles and $13,000 for couples. So I'm not saying it's huge, but it shows that the government has felt under pressure on this issue. And we know this because Labor has been trying to pump it up. The National Farmers Federation have been doing it too. And Joel Fitzgibbon, even the shadow agriculture minister, has been calling for a special bipartisan war cabinet to tackle the drought crisis. It has been an issue for them, Fran. Yeah, it is an issue because the farmers are unhappy and they won't be particularly happy with this new announcement either because what that amounts to, what the PM has announced, is that after four years of getting this drought household assistant, assistance, you're now going to get a special payment ongoing, but it's only half of that amount. So they're not going to be happy with that. All this is, you know, bits and pieces really, tinkering around the edges, which is what the NFF, which has come out now with the National Strout Strategy, it's hand, strategy is handed to the government, is saying this is all very well, but we need... A a big plan that gets us organised and out in front of the next drought. And that's going to include things that the government isn't really talking about, which is payments for farmers to diversify their income, resource management of the farm. Maybe if climate makes some areas unfarmable, unviable in terms of producing food food and fibre, does that mean we want to start paying some farmers to not farm but stay on the land and manage that natural resource for water quality, for land quality, for carbon sinks, those sorts of things. These are big issues. And the government's been saying, well, we've got a $7 billion drought package. The farmers know there's nothing like $7 billion being spent on getting them out of this hole. In fact, there's a tiny, tiny percentage of this. Uh, And so they want something more from the government. It's very difficult for a government to do, but the call from Labor for a drought war cabinet is the sort of thing that I think the country wants to be hearing, which is there is a bipartisan focus 
on their troubles, on getting ahead of this. It's got to be about climate. It's got to be about science. It's got to be about water. And then it's got to be about the welfare of the farmers and these regional communities. We've got this little bit of money from the Prime Minister now this week extending that payment. But I think what we've seen, and I think I've mentioned this before, PK, I think the government is doing all it can to defend its surplus in the wake of the lower IMF figures this week, which has you know, really caused some problems for the government on the economic front, um, suggesting that the growth forecasts uh, are going to be downgraded. But I think we will see in December when the government comes out with the MAIFO, the mid-year economic statement, we will see some kind of major drought package that the government's working on now. It'll be a relatively relatively big ticket item. I'm suspecting, I think they're going to have to do something like this. They can't wait for the budget and uh, it's going to have some stimulus money in it and it's going to be drought focused. I think that's the sort of thing. Maybe it won't be drought, but I'm suspecting it will. The government will come out with before the end of the year to try and look as though it's got a sort of a national framework for this. Yeah. And I think if you read between the lines. There has been a very subtle, and I admit it's incredibly subtle, but shift in some of the rhetoric that the government's using now, especially after Labor seized on these figures to call on the government to provide, you know, fiscal stimulus and invest in infrastructure, where it's saying, you know, governments always plan for contingencies. We want to stick to the economic course. Uh, We don't want knee jerk or or emergency responses. So that they say, and, you know, they'll say, we don't want to go to the pink bats or the the school halls kind of approach, but letting us know that they do have contingencies if things worsen. And I feel like that is incredibly subtle, Fran, I admit. But there is a, don't you reckon, just a bit of a, hey, guys, we've got this, we're watching this, we don't want to be alarmist or knee-jerk but we're watching this. Yeah, and that's the business of government. I mean, aiming for a stimulus is not a bad goal for any government, that's for sure. Um, But you don't want to have your stimulus and have the nation in recession. So the government must have contingency plans for that. Interestingly, we heard from Arthur Sinodinas, who's on his way out to be the US ambassador, um, after a long and really admirable stint, I think, as a politician and a political advisor. Part of his review of the last election campaign was that the promise of a surplus by the government was key to the government's economic credentials and one of the reasons why some in the end voted for the government and against Labor. They're a bit spooked by Labor's tax and spend and they like the idea of a government on track to deliver a surplus. So the government politically and economically is not going to give that away lightly, but no government is going to let the country go into recession if they've got money to spend and strategies to avoid it. It's how they package those strategies that they get the best economic and political bang for their buck, I think. Sarah Martin, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent. Welcome to the party room and we're face to face. It's amazing. It's the most exciting thing to happen all week. Well, let's go to some of the things that did happen, nevertheless, in the week. Um, We've already talked about Labor taking pot shots at the government and putting the pressure on over drought policy. But Labor suffered some pressure itself this week over climate. In a week when Labor was trying to get up a motion designed around climate emergency, what happened was the Prime Minister was able to put the spotlight on tensions within Labor over climate. The shadow treasurer, who knows what his position is on the climate reduction targets? There's a climate fight club going over on the other side, Mr Speaker, but the thing they've forgotten about climate fight club is you're not supposed to talk about it. 
A climate fight club. Now, what he's talking about there is the Shadow Minister, Joel Fitzgibbon, coming out saying quite specifically that Labor should dump its emissions reductions target, sign on to the government's 28% target and then see what happens from there. And Joel Fitzgibbon really copped it around the ears from both the left and the right faction this week, Sarah. So where's this ended up for Labor and how much of a how much did it downgrade, if you like, their call later in the Parliament of a climate emergency? It hasn't landed yet and it's going to be some time until it does land. Uh, and obviously this is all part of the, um, what everyone likes to call the recalibration uh, post-election as um, the opposition deals with its bruising election loss and works out where it went wrong. And obviously climate policy is one of those areas that they're looking very closely at. Um, And Joel Fitzgibbon was saying we need to match the government's 2030 target so we can keep the focus on the fact that they are not um, going to meet those targets rather than talking about ourselves and making ourselves the, um, you know, opening ourselves up to a scare campaign. So I think it just goes to show that there is still uncertainty about how they are going to deal with this issue. And there is a very real concern that um, with that more ambitious target, they perhaps did uh, alienate uh, some of their blue-collar working class base and and they're trying to work out how they can have strong action on climate change while also making sure that those people don't feel economically threatened by that. So that's the sort of um, space that they're they're trying to resolve at the moment. And I think the move to introduce the motion on a climate emergency and obviously Mark Butler came out very strongly saying, no, we we are a party that believes in strong action on climate change. So we think it's an emergency. Exactly. So much so, behold the motion. So um, look, I, I think that it was certainly a very clear a clear message uh, from Mark Butler uh, and the the um, the party that no they did want to be seen as a party with stronger action on climate change and we're not going to adopt the government's targets. It's interesting though. Uh, I had Joel Fitzgibbon on the show mm. on RN Drive and he. You know, he kind of defended, he doubled down on the 28% call and said he doesn't think he's lost. Because I said, well, haven't you lost? Haven't you lost that argument? Everyone's come out and said you're wrong. Mm. And then back the climate emergency. It seems that he hasn't given up and he thinks he has some support. It's a smaller group in the Labor Party, but they do think they need to significantly pivot on this issue. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, obviously this is coloured by um, people's constituencies. And and Joel Fitzgibbon got the shock of his life when he had a, had a huge swing against him um, in the seat of Hunter. And and obviously his constituency is very different to the constituency of a lot of the other, um, you know, metropolitan uh, or MPs with metropolitan seats. So this is going to be an issue that will be different for for each MP. Um, And the majority of MPs, uh, you know, don't have those regional um, uh, electorates like Joel Fitzgibbon. So I think his point is he wants to get out and make his case forcefully. And and I think he has achieved his goal in putting this issue at the centre of, of debate and reflection for the Labor Party. Um, and of course, we, we saw those swings um, against Labor in some of the outer metro areas, um, safe Labor seats, where this issue was seen to have been a problem. And that was that was also mentioned in the Victorian branch's uh, submission to the, the review that's been undertaken by Weatherall and Emerson. So, you know, it is a live issue for them to work out. And I, th- I think there's still a, a, bit of, a bit of a way to go for them until they land this. The other issue Labor's been prosecuting, the economy, and on this, Labor has been quite consistent calling for more stimulus uh, using the latest IMF report to make that argument. Sarah, how do you think that's... It's a kind of long game for Labor and there is it isn't without risk. I've spoken to senior government people who say to me, look, even if this report shows, you know, economic headwinds or the economy struggling, when we're talking about the economy, we're still happy. 
go crazy. Ask us about mm. the economy. I, I hope they focus on the economy, mm-hmm. is what I've been told. That's what Labor's done. It's a long game for Labor. This is a really interesting debate because there, there are many in the Labor Party who are almost relying upon um, the economy to turn sour for them to try and exploit that politically and they believe that that's a vulnerability for, for the government. But of course, as you say, you know, the coalition believes and polling shows us rightly or wrongly that voters view economic management as a strength for the coalition. So if the next election is going to be an election about the economy and economic management, then you're right. A lot of government MPs say, bring it on. If we're, we're fighting about the economy, that's our turf. You know, if we're fighting about health and education, that's Labor's turf. So um, I, th- I think it's really interesting to see how Labor um, moves to exploit this. And I think Jim Chalmers is doing a good job in, in making, in prosecuting the argument that the uh, economy has turned on this government's watch. But how people respond to that, I think is going to be really interesting and, and, and how they turn that into a, a net political strength for them is is yet to be seen. Whether people will think, oh, the economy's gone bad, well, I'm not going to risk a change of government. That's too risky. Yeah. I'll stick with the devil I know. And in that past, in the past, that has been a coalition argument that has worked mm. with them. And as I mentioned earlier, Arthur Sinodinus gave that speech in the parliament where he essentially said that the review of the election was the government talking about a surplus and, and tax cuts, even though they didn't have much more to offer, was a significant positive for the government. But I think it is interesting that Jim Chalmers, a few months ago, he came out and said, we need a mini statement, we need a mini budget, the government needs to put stimulus in, build it in and start promising it, bring forward those tax cuts now. And it seemed a little extreme and a little, oh yeah, you wish. Um, And it was fairly easily swatted away. Now we've got business groups. We've got Innes Willocks from AI Group, for instance, saying Mm. almost exactly the same thing. So everyone is now on that same message that Jim Chalmers brought in Mm. uh, a few months ago. I think this will be A, politically, a Philip for the young shadow treasurer who's been sort of, you know, chipping away. And now I think everything is on that turf, given the IMF downgrade this week. Um, So that's a positive for Labor politically, and they haven't Mm. had many of them yet since the election. The drought thing also, the message coming uh, home to roost has also been a bit of a positive. So Labor, in a sense, have had a couple of political wins this week Mm. that might boost their confidence. I wonder if that's going to play into, you know, their strategy, Anthony Albanese's cut through. Um, You know, there's been a bit of criticism even from within that he hasn't really, you know, landed some blows yet. Well, I think that started to change this week, do you think? I think you're right. I think these, as you say, two issues that should be strengths for the government, the drought and the economic management, they have found themselves having to, to defend themselves. And, mm. um, you know, Scott Morrison being absolutely savaged by Alan Jones suggests that mm. there is a, has been um, a, a shift in sentiment. And interestingly enough, I was chatting to someone in Labor yesterday who said they're actually running um, a bit of a subterranean um, regional Queensland campaign on some of the drought, ish, drought and infrastructure issues as well. So speaking to to, you know, regional Queensland, you know, local newspapers, for example. Now, that's an area where, you know, the, the government can suffer. Labor not, is not necessarily doing that because they think they can win seats. But look at what happened in the New South Wales election where um, the Nationals had massive swings against them and lost the seats of uh, Bowen and Murray and, um, you know, suffered 30-plus swings against them um, to the Shooters and Fishers Party. The government is vulnerable in those areas and um, and, and you know, there's certainly um, regional MPs who are very well aware of that as 
as well. Let's just talk about another theme of the week. It dominated at the start of the week, but it's just so ongoing. Penny Wong's address to the Australian Institute of International Affairs. She criticised the Prime Minister for not having a consistent strategic line on China. My point is this. We face a very challenging time in foreign policy, a very challenging regional and global environment, and a very challenging time in our relationship with China. It would be best if those issues were managed with a very clear focus on the national interest and in a bipartisan manner. Instead, what we have is a Prime Minister who does seek partisan advantage, who does seek to manoeuvre and play tactical games, uh, and really Australia can't afford it. Penny Wong, a really political speech on foreign affairs Mm. delivered at the beginning of the week. And I interviewed her and sort of, she said, look, you know what, I thought carefully about this. I'm not usually so political about foreign affairs, but something has shifted. Mm. I think that's right. And look, really interesting, I guess, given it comes after some fairly extraordinary speeches in the foreign policy space by the Prime Minister with, you know, the lowest speech about negative globalism. Uh, You know, there's been a bit of sort of Trump light uh, rhetoric in how the Prime Minister is is talking about international affairs. And I think Penny Wong was um, was calling him out on that. And, you know, sort of saying, how can you be deriding negative globalism and at the same time, allegedly promoting free Mm. trade and and, and multilateral um, trade agreements to promote regional prosperity, etc. So a really interesting speech. And I think this is a dynamic that's not going away either. Um, Uh, And particularly if Morrison continues to go down this sort of Trump-esque path. Yeah, which is a bit dangerous at the moment, given some of the soundings that are coming out from the US president. I mean, that letter that's just been released from him to the Turkish president, how extraordinary that two days after he agreed to withdraw the troops, he says, let's work out a good deal. You don't want to be responsible for slaughtering thousands of people. I mean, you know, Australia needs to be very careful around this, I think, at the moment, because the US foreign policy seems to have just taken a pretty dramatic turn downwards. Let's park that to one side. Um, But Mm. Penny Wong gave a very uh, strong speech and thoughtful foreign policy speech just a few weeks ago when she was in Jakarta about US-China relations and, you know, about where the US wants to settle here. And this speech was, as PK said, much more political in its messaging and trying to put the weights on the Australian government, I think, to come up with a position on China, which we don't have yet. I mean, we had those comments from Peter Dutton last week. In essence, I saw not a lot wrong with the position that Peter Dutton was outlining. It's just that when one, and political, particularly a minister like him, comes out with comments, it can be easily picked off by China as, you know, outrageous, humiliating, patronising, divisive, um, especially when it's not backed up by an all-of-government um, position on China. Instead, what we got was headlines saying the Prime Minister was hosing down Peter Dutton's comments. So we really, Penny Wong, trying to zero in, I think, on what we are lacking here from our government when when it comes to China. And let's face it, it's a really complex relationship to be managing those two, US and China. Um, And that is we don't have clear commentary coming from our leadership at the moment on China and how we deal with the very, you know, contrasting value systems and when it offends our rules and our laws, how we respond to that while still managing the relationship. It is incredibly complex. This is an issue that's not going to be the issue for the next five years. This is probably an issue for the next generation 
or two or the next century. Like this is something that Australia is going to have to um, work out how to manage um, deftly and with nuance. And it's going to be absolutely challenged and is being challenged, um, particularly by um, you know the existence of a, a very capricious US president. So um, those tensions aren't going anywhere. Um, I think Penny Wong is right to articulate the need for the government to have a better approach in this space and also most definitely the need for um, a bipartisan approach. This is, this is so integral to Australia's national interest that it's, it's you know, it, it can't just be put up for short-term political gain or politicking. Hey, Sarah, we can't let this podcast go this week without mentioning the talking points. I mean, this was really, what a crazy stuff up. The government accidentally released all of its talking points on the first day of the parliamentary week. Oopsie, daisy, daisy, do. All the journalists got it. How many pages? 15 or something? It was enormous. I, I just thought... A, a manifesto it was, of It was a to- yeah, talking point manifesto. I just thought, how many MPs are actually reading these talking points for starters? But look, As I, I read I them, of... I just felt like I was just rereading every interview I've done with the government minister well, for the last exactly. six months. exactly. As much of a stuff up as it was, I was also like... Like, oh, well, tell us something we don't know because this is all the crap we get all day, every day. But, you know, The Guardian did a fact check on it and um, and tried to at least um, call them out on some of the uh, misleading talking points that uh, had been distributed to MPs. You know, it was embarrassing. Clearly someone made a mistake, let's be mm. clear. But the Prime Minister said something in question time. He said, well, I'm just, maybe we should just release them anyway. Yeah, like, they're like, so no. useful. <laughs> no, all of us. I can't read a 1500-word manifesto from But it was a lesson every week. I think to all of us that, you know, journalism is nothing without taking governments on and, uh, and, and oppositions, but governments obviously have the mm. power, and pushing them when some of those talking points are full of spin mm. and are sometimes even devoid of facts. I mean, you know, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't all be on the same script unless they got the same script, right? So, <laughs> You know yeah. what I think the message is? Scrap the talking points and let's get everybody not on the same script because that's not how that humans are. Nice. Hey, Sarah, yes. always good to hang out with you. It was pleasure. the most exciting moment of our week. Um, we need and to I get along. And it will remain so. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's kind of time for question time, although we got sort of more comments than questions. A few people laughing at us in in the questions or comments that have been sent to us about Polly Waffle and being glad that we haven't called this podcast Polly Waffle. Uh, (laughs) Yes, we're glad too. All right, that's it from us. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next episode. Until then, stay in touch on Twitter using hashtag The Party Room. And, of course, you can also email us questions or comments or noticing other podcasts at thepartyroom at abc.net.au. Rate, review, subscribe, you know the drill. Please do it. The Party Room, get us up there. See you, Fran. See you, PK. Hi there, PK here. Just before I go, I wanted to quickly let you know about another podcast. It's called Russia, if you're listening, and this season it's all about Russia versus the world. You might remember how Russia meddled in the 2016 US election, but that was only part of President Vladimir Putin's big plan. The third season, Russia, if you're listening, looks at where the scheme to destroy Western democracies began, the damage it's done and where it might end. If you're interested, search for Russia, if you're listening, wherever you get your podcasts or find it on the ABC Listen app. In 2016, it was this. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. Asking for Russian help in his 2016 election. This time, it's totally different. He's asking for Ukrainian help in his 2020 election. They should investigate the Biden. 
The story starts with a phone call with President Vladimir, sorry, uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine. That call was perfect. It couldn't have been nicer. And even the Ukrainian government put out a statement that that was a perfect call. There was no pressure put on them whatsoever. But why would the president of Ukraine want to help out Donald Trump? Well, you'll never guess it, but it's because of... The Russians. Yes, Will? Look, Matt, you can't blame this thing on the Russians too. But, Will, that's what the podcast is about. It's, we spent two seasons talking about Russia and the US election. Yeah, but you were just talking about Ukraine. What's Russia got to do with it? Literally, it has everything to do with this. That's what the third season is going to be about. Let me tell you a little story. Ukraine needs missiles and weapons to fight a war against Russia. Russia took Crimea in 2014. The moment Russian troops smashed their way into Ukraine's Crimea airbase. And ever since then, they've been causing headaches for Ukraine. Ukraine's new government calls it an invasion and occupation by Russian forces. It's been a long and horrific war. Obviously, the world is watching reports of a downed passenger jet near the Russia-Ukraine border. But here's the thing. Influencing America and invading Ukraine is only part of Vladimir Putin's plan. It's so much bigger. Take Brexit. They've got a hand in that too. If you poke the Russian bear with a stick, don't be surprised when he reacts. Even before the Brexit vote, the British Prime Minister thought Russia might be fiddling around with it. It is worth asking the question, you know, who would be happy if we left? Uh, Putin might be happy, I suspect. Everything that happened in America happened in Europe except much, much bigger, like messing with elections. By the way, the Russian banks just loaned Marie Le Pen 9 million euros. They, the Le Pen people said no one else will give us a cent, but Putin will. Hacking into stuff. A cyber-induced power outage. But it's not just bigger, it's scarier. Murder its prime minister on the country's election day. They're using people as weapons. And together, Russia and the Assad regime are deliberately weaponizing migration. And using military-grade chemical weapons in sleepy English towns. There's the famous Salisbury Cathedral, famous not only in Europe, but in the whole world. It's famous for its 123-metre spire. This is the story of how Vladimir Putin's campaign to undermine and destroy the Western world began, how successful it's been, and how it's likely to end. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your attention. I'm Matt Bevan, and this is Russia If You're Listening, Season 3. Search for Russia If You're Listening wherever you're listening to this, tell your friends, subscribe now, and don't forget to leave a review. The first episode will drop on the 21st of October. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.